Welcome to Sex Positive Families, where parents, caring adults, and advocates come to grow and learn about sexual health in a supportive community. I'm your host and the founder of SPF, Melissa Carnegie. Join me and special guests as we dive into the art of sex positive parenting. Together, we will shake the shame and trash the taboos to strengthen sexual health talks with the children in our lives. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, families. We are fast approaching our 10th episode, and I'm excited to continue to bring you topics and perspectives that keep us all growing in our sexual health journeys so we can positively influence the experiences of our next generation. I appreciate each of you for tuning in, sharing, and submitting reviews on this podcast. I want to invite you to join our new Patreon community, where we are live streaming exclusive content for parents and caring adults each month, offering resources and sex positive swag. Go to patreon.com slash sex positive families to join us. So recently, NPR ran a story on the importance of sex education, particularly for young people with intellectual disabilities. One alarming reason is the higher rate of sexual abuse and assault within this community versus folks without ID. To help us explore this issue and how parents, caring adults, and educators can approach sexual health talks with young people living with ID, I chat with Nick Winges Giannis, who is a researcher and the project coordinator of the Texas Sibling Network at the Texas Center for Disability Studies at the University of Texas. Nick shares her personal connection with ID, which catapulted a career in service, research, and advocacy around sexual health for folks living with intellectual disabilities. Let's check it out. All right. Well, welcome to the SPF podcast, Nick. We are so excited to have you and to dive into the topic today. I'd love for you to share with our listeners what your journey to the work that you've been doing has been. My journey, it seems to me, is kind of long-winded. I grew up with a sibling, a sister, who is labeled with intellectual disability, and often went to her school meetings, um, and I was always surprised by kind of what the curriculum that was being presented was, because it kind of seemed really different from my own curriculum. Mm -hmm. So there was that weirdness that I kind of grew up being like, why is it so different? Um, And then when I graduated high school, I didn't immediately go to college. I started working in social services. And I usually uh, went towards residential group homes um, that had adults living in them that had various developmental disabilities. I was in that field for a while, and I ended up working in a group home that had men who had developmental disabilities and also sexual offending behaviors. Mm. And that was a really, it was a tough house. It had a lot of stigma associated with it. And when I started working there, there were a lot of rules and trainings that happened that seemed to be really scary. And then once I started working in this house, I kind of was blown away by the guys that lived there and one, how amazing they were and two, how their own lives led them to where they were, which often was through a complete lack of any sex education and also mixed with 
various sexual abuses. Right, right. During that time, I started to learn a lot more about those processes and kind of working with these guys and seeing what that looked like and how different it was and what the stigma associated with them was. So I decided to go back to school so that I had some more agency in kind of furthering this discussion um, and furthering this work. And when I got to school and grad school, I realized that there was just a dearth of information. Everything that was either associated with someone who was labeled as an intellectual disability and sexuality was either about sexual offending behaviors or um, talking about eugenics or or talking about how people just generally are asexual. And it just did not jive at all with my own experiences and with the experiences of a lot of people I worked with. And I started to kind of do a lot of research and find out where the work was being done, what kind of work was out there. And there were some amazing programs out there. They were just few and far between. And then I started to work with this one man. Uh, I was an independent contractor at this point. I was living in Portland, Oregon. And this one man was having a lot of trouble uh, because he personally identified as gay. He did have an intellectual disability and his parents, whom he lived with, were very conservative and very, very religious and did not believe that he could be gay or was gay. And so he started interacting with some fairly unsafe behaviors because what he knew about gay men were these stigmas. Um, And so he was not very safe. And so I was trying to talk to him and figure this out. And his family was very upset that there was any discussion about his sexuality. And they pulled him out of services completely and said that people who have intellectual disabilities are not gay, they don't have any sexuality. And from that point on, there was no contact between my agency and him. And it was just this huge turning point for me that there's this huge group of people out there who are left to their own devices, who have no information, possibly no support at all. And I wanted to be someone who could help with that and change that. So I continued to work on on my grad school work, which was basically looking at intellectual disability and sexuality, looking at it from sex ed programs, looking at sex education, looking at how people have self-advocated for themselves and what they've said about sex sex ed and their own sexuality. Um, And I've come to, I'm working on my PhD right now, which is intellectual disability and sexuality as a concept are completely intertwined. And the way that we generally look at people who have intellectual disabilities is generally associated with sexuality in some ways, such as they are asexual, or we look at their history of eugenics, or we look at how people um, are incapable of understanding sexuality, or they are deemed as hypersexual and have sexual offending behaviors. And so it just started to really blow me away how much they're intertwined and yet we still have so much censorship and limitations associated with just providing any information at all. Wow. So you've had a it's a purposeful journey in terms of the, you know, your personal experience in your own family and then in the work experience and the research that you've been doing. I'm so glad that passionate folks like you exist as advocates and, you know, to really push forward these conversations. 
Can you define for us what intellectual disability encompasses, um, and especially, you know, in um, relation to developmental disabilities? Yeah, so developmental disabilities is more of an umbrella term that refers to a disability that occurs before the age of 18. Um, And it has some other facets that go with it. Intellectual disabilities specifically is looking at, it generally includes adaptive behaviors and how people can get through daily living tasks throughout the day. And it generally also includes an IQ score, um, which has changed over time, but is generally at this point considered 75 and below. But it's usually looking at a functional assessment as well. So how well people can be independent in their daily lives or what types of assistance or supports they need in their life. Um, And that usually speaks to more intellectual disability. And I tend to say labeled with intellectual disability because if you look at history, it's been a term that has changed over time, not just the exact definition, but also how we define people. So we've had, you know, very hurtful terms that were considered medical terms, Mm -hmm. such as idiot and moron, and those were considered medical terms at the time. Mm -hmm. And then we moved into mental retardation, which is, again, not something that we would use now. Mm -hmm. It has changed into intellectual disability, but I foresee that that will eventually change. If we look at history, it's something that's inevitable, Um, but we're constantly trying to label people Mm -hmm. in this box. And then that label just tends to really limit how we see their potential. Absolutely. When I was looking at, uh, I guess, one of the governing organizations um, or leading, you know, the thought and the advocacy and research of AAIDD.org. Uh-huh. Um, and when I was kind of looking at some of their content uh, and specifically how to support folks with in- intellectual disabilities, um, one thing really stood out for me. Um, it said that um, enhancing the functioning specifically in terms of self-worth, um, mm-hmm. subjective well-being, pride, and self-identity and what spoke so clearly to me there is that those principles are at the core of what we tend to do when providing sexual health education Uh so like there's such a crossover there there's a huge huge crossover um i think it's amazing when we talk about when we're talking about a lot of work that's being done um, with people who are labeled with ID, and we talk about self-determination, mm-hmm. and we talk about self-advocacy, um, and we're talking about how to encourage independence, and all of that seems to be discussed separately in a silo from anything that has to do with sexuality most mm-hmm. of the time, and to me, that does not make any sense, right. considering sexuality is just a core part of the human experience, and that it cover so many different parts of how we experience the world. So it's, you know, how we view ourselves, how we view any of our relationships, whether it be intimate or not with other people, how we see media and how we intake that media. And yet when we're talking about self-determination and advocacy with people who are labeled, sexuality doesn't come into that discussion. And I, I just, I, I can't see how we can separate those two. Right. What, so what are the common myths um, and misconceptions uh, around talking to folks with intellectual disabilities about their sexual health? Right. So lots of people, and these are people who either have no interactions with people who might be labeled or have very little, and it includes people who work with 
or our family of. And they think that a lot of people who are labeled with ID are asexual. And while asexuality is, you know, definitely an orientation and and Mm -hmm. ways that people identify, it seems to be assumed of people who are labeled with ID that that is just who they are, which is not true. People often assume that people labeled with ID are incapable of understanding sexuality and the nuances of sexuality and incapable of understanding differences between public and private Mm -hmm. um, and relationships and intimacy. There are also people who think that uh, people labeled with ID are more like children and then therefore should not be introduced to this world of sexuality because it would be impure. It would be as if you were tainting a child or sexualizing a child, which again is not true because of course people who are labeled with ID mature and grow in this world um, the same as anyone else. And they might need supports at different levels, but they still exist in this world and mature physically at the same rate as anybody experience hormones and all these different things happening with their body and they feel love. And it's, it's something that people just either ignore or avoid or try to say doesn't happen. What about queerness in terms of folks with ID? Uh, well, unfortunately, this is one of those really touchy topics with people who work in this community or family members. So a lot of people believe that people who are labeled with ID cannot be queer, um, that it's just not something that happens, which again, kind of blows my mind mm-hmm. <laughs> because right. they are people who are part of this world and this happens to everybody regardless of your ability. As I said, I worked with a young man who identified as gay and his family just was vehemently against this and he was confident about it he identified as this way he felt it in every part of his body and he talked about it and he talked about what he found attractive and and this is something that occurs and yet we either say well this is because people who are living in say residential facilities are segregated by um, gender often and so this is why they are exhibiting these queer behaviors which may lead to some instances but that doesn't mean that's what the entire experience is that happened a lot uh, with people i talked about when i was working in different homes and they would be like oh it's just because you know they only live with other people who identify as men or they only live with other people who identify as women and yet when they were out and about and you know experiencing life they would still choose this person or this other sex and i don't understand how people are saying that people who are labeled with id cannot be queer it just does not make sense to me it's dehumanizes their experience yes So what tips can you offer to parents or caring adults of young people with ID um, in terms of how they can foster their sexual health or approach talking about sex? I personally think it's very similar to talking to any younger person um, when you're first talking about sex. You really want to make sure that you're answering the question that's asked. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking with someone who's labeled an ID, you want to make sure that you're really being concrete about your answers and what you're talking about. So, you know, using metaphors is not going to be very helpful. And um, being a little abstract is not going to be very helpful. Using pictures is very helpful. 
some sort of prop is very helpful for people, mm-hmm. but using simple language, not using jargon, bringing up the conversation early without shame right. is very helpful. I think for across the board for anybody, despite what your ability is, uh, so that it becomes a normal part of life that we all experience the sexuality. And then that also leads to being comfortable with how your body is changing or being comfortable with how your, your feelings are changing. I think that one of the biggest disservices that many people who are labeled with ID face is that they have been infantilized mm-hmm. um, or they've been treated as children their entire lives. And so that generally means that that person is petted or told to, you know, hug their relative or mm-hmm. friends or whatever. And so their body sovereignty really goes down. Yeah. And when I say body sovereignty, that I'm talking about having that agency that your body is your own and you have the right to say no to somebody touching you or you touching to someone else. And I think that that leads to a lot of blurred lines for people. So, you know, there's a lot of people who think that it's quote unquote cute to hug people who are labeled and that that's just sweet instead of saying, you know what, that's your body and this is my body and it's used for these different ways and these different ways at these different times. Instead, we lower that for people who are labeled with IDs so that their body sovereignty is very low. And that means that their boundaries are very low. And so when we look at stats that have come up over, you know, even the last month of people who have experienced different sexual abuses, I think part of that is because we have lowered those boundaries for people over their lifetime. Yeah. That's such a great point. What sex education programs, um, are there any that are out there that are addressing folks with different abilities? There's a, a public school education called FLASH. It's out of King County in Seattle, Washington, that has a general ed, sex ed program that's comprehensive. And then they have the special education part that they have just revamped and it's comprehensive, meaning awesome. that it takes into account more facets of sexuality. It takes into account people's faith communities and their families and some of their belief systems. It also encourages them to have these discussions and make these choices. It encourages them to look at healthy versus non-healthy relationships, what consent looks like, different orientations, different gender identities. So that's starting to be talked about, but really there's more, I think, for adults with intellectual disabilities that's mm-hmm. available. And I think that's because people are more comfortable talking to adults with disabilities versus kids. That's tough, course, right? Because at yeah. that point, like it's often kind of, it's too late. And when I say too late, I just mean, you know, some of the adverse outcomes that we are trying to you know, prepare or prevent at that point, once you reach adulthood, it can be, a, it can be harder to change certain behaviors or certain understandings or certain events that have already taken place by that point. And that is where a lot of advocacy is happening. This is where we are like, you know, it's great that you want to have these discussions now or these workshops now for adults, but during that time when they were growing up and having all these questions and weren't didn't know what was going on or were maybe having these interactions that didn't feel quite right, we should be having these sexual education discussions then. We should be incorporating it into 
this growing up time. And I'd say that across the board for, I think, all kids. I think that's the big takeaway here, right? Is that, yes, we are we are using the label of intellectual disabilities, you know, because there have been, you know, marked differences um, and stigmas. But the big takeaway that I'm hearing from what you're saying is that the education needs to not be any different. The conversations need to not be any different than what you would approach with, with any other child of any ability, because really, you are assessing your unique child and where their age is, you know, their comprehension level is, their uh, maturity levels are, their curiosities, and that can vary child by child, and it has nothing to do with abilities, you know, or labels. It's just purely you looking at your unique child as a unique human being and trying to meet their needs, like you said, early and ongoing. Early and ongoing, that is exactly what it is. And I think it's when people are asking, what are some tips you have for, you know, talking to families or staff members, whatever the case may be, I I hesitate because mm-hmm. there is no overall general way to approach it. It really depends on that person. And I think that's for anyone that you're talking to. So if you know that person, then you know how do they communicate you know do they use words do they use a communication board how does that person um, understand ideas and these are all things that come into play when you're talking to anybody how are you going to communicate this information to that person so that it is effective and it makes sense to them and they understand it and then they can take it and learn from it and then go to the next level and that's for anybody and i think it's a little bit harder for some people to kind of take that step when we're talking about people who are labeled with ID because there may be um, different barriers or a few more barriers than people are used to. But that does not mean that that person is incapable of understanding or learning. And in fact, that person might need that information more because Mm -hmm. other people think that person is incapable of understanding or learning and taking advantage of that situation. And so this is why we need to be having these conversations instead of assuming that people labeled as ID can't handle this information, provide the information in a platform that makes sense for that person and then move on from there. And I just don't understand why we would keep people from that information that is so very necessary. Yeah, it sounds like the education really needs to happen with the parents and caring adults. It needs to start there, you know, in addressing their taboos or their the myths that they have or the, the challenging emotions that they might be having in terms of having these conversations. It does, and I think some parents are very nervous that if they start to have that conversation, then it might cause their kids to be really curious and go out and do things and I think that's something that all parents exactly hear yeah and it doesn't it doesn't mean that it's more so for you know these kids it's just that I think parents of of kids with disabilities have more fears about different things and maybe they've just entered this world and I've talked to a lot of parents who or like, you know, I really want to have this conversation or I would love to figure this out, but we are figuring out, you know, a communication board or we're trying to figure out how to get him or her into school or whatever. And like, those are very real barriers and those are very real supports that need to be addressed. And I would never trivialize those. I would say that 
this conversation also is a priority that should be bundled in with those other things that are going on. Because if we leave it until they're adults, there there's a lot of missing opportunities that happen. Absolutely. This this is um, such a helpful, you know, stepping stone. Again, bringing these things up and opening up the dialogue. There was a recent NPR article about this, and then you also authored an article, is that correct, with um, the Austin American Statesman? I did through um, UT. So I I work at the Texas Center for Disability Studies, and I wrote um, an op-ed, and I sent it to the Statesman, which was great. I was just so happy that that conversation is just getting started here, especially in Texas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I want people to be having these conversations and to not be so nervous or scared about it. And I like to put out there that I am a sibling and I have talked with my parents about this regarding my sister and I've had conversations with my sister and it's, it is hard and it's difficult. And my sister is not very interested in this stuff right now. <laughs> She's like, yes, I know where babies come from. I know about this oh. stuff. <laughs> Already blew my mother away. But we're having these conversations. And I think kind of putting that out there really shows to my sister and to other people with disabilities that we respect them exactly. as, as a person, that we want to have these conversations with them and respect that they know something and respect that they have this sexuality and I think that it it's kind of opened up a new venue between my sister and I because she knows that she can be like I I kissed my boyfriend and I can sit there and laugh and she she gets giddy and she's like Mm -hmm. that cool (laughs) that is no different than what we the same types of conversations and connections and and open dialogue that we seek to foster with all of our young people Regardless of ability, we want them to feel safe and comfortable being able to explore their sexuality and their sexual health journey. Absolutely. And knowing that they feel safe enough to come to someone, knowing that they feel safe enough to ask these questions. And then also, you know, I think it's great that she wants to feel this, the pitter-patter of having love and you know, having that human connection and human touch. I think that's an amazing gift. So as we wrap up here, what does sex positivity mean to you? How does it play out in your life or in the work that you do? Sex positivity to me is embracing sexuality. It is encouraging discussion. Mm -hmm. It is being open to talking about sex and its wide world of what that means and how that is expressed and how people interact with that and not shaming people, not censoring people or telling people uh, that they're wrong. Uh, I think that that is sex positivity and just always knowing that (laughs) we never know it all. Right and that we're always learning, and that that's kind of an amazing thing, too. So what projects do you have going on right now or that you're looking forward to for 2018? I am actually going to be doing sex ed workshops um, for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities through TCDS, having a a post-secondary program that's going to be starting up So we're going to have some people living in dorms and we're going to 
just do, you know, a quick overview of sex ed, um, relationships, consent. Uh, I'm going to be doing a full-on workshop for groups of people who are interested in taking that. I'm also going to be providing workshops for staff members and, and family members to take kind of a partner course to the courses that self-advocates are taking. And I will maybe hopefully finish my dissertation. I think you will. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, 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 we can help hold you accountable to that because it's <laughs> obvious that you are doing amazing work and um, it's so needed. What does TCDS stand for? It's University of Texas's Texas Center for Disability Studies. Awesome. And so how can people connect with you? Well, I work there. So if you go to the TCDS site, I am on there and you can contact me through there. I am also on Instagram under Chi Chi. That is my sex educator name. Awesome. (laughs) And um, yeah, mostly, mostly through TCDS because that's where a lot of my work is coming out right now. And I'm really trying to work with a lot of the disability community here. So I'm very excited to, to kind of move into this whole area. I also work with siblings, which is very exciting. We just started a sibling group. So we are working with siblings of people who are labeled with IDD and creating kind of a support resource network. That's awesome because I think as you've shared with us, that relationship that you can have with a sibling is really special and really unique. And so that's, that's amazing that you're considering that and providing opportunities for support and to, to continue the dialogue with siblings. Yes. And I think that siblings are kind of the key right now. I don't, I think we're kind of an odd, an odd position because I think, you know, a lot of parents enter into this world more of a surprise and learning curve, whereas a lot of siblings have been in this world and always known this Mm -hmm. world of of someone with an intellectual disability. So we're kind of in a unique spot. Yeah. And are you working with O-School? I am working with O-School. I have not been as active as I wished I was, but I am a pleasure professional on O-School talking about sex and disability um, and then just basic human sexuality. So I, I am on that platform when I get a chance. <laughs> yeah, no, I know you You have a busy schedule. I will offer encouraging words, though, that <laughs> a lot of our listeners are um, also listeners or pleasure professionals, um, but listeners of O School. And I know that this topic and the wealth of knowledge that you have to bring to it, your unique voice through a live stream format would be so helpful. So we'll definitely keep an eye out for when you do some live streams because I think that, again, these are all conversations that need to be had and myths that need to be busted so that we can offer better opportunities for folks with all abilities. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this has been amazing. I really appreciate your time and your expertise and you sharing your personal journey with us. I know that a lot of our listeners will really benefit from this. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been just an awesome opportunity and I'm so thankful that you asked me to do this. If you like this episode and podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or Google Play so more people can find us. And you can always visit us on our website at sexpositivefamilies.com. 
There you can shop sex positive swag in our online store, connect with us across our social media platforms, register for our latest workshops, and learn more resources to help support sexual health in your family. Until next time, I'm Melissa Carnegie. Thank you for supporting content that strengthens sexual health talks in families.